This morning, our text is from Matthew um, 28, verses 1 through 10. And uh, if you have your pew Bibles, it's found on page 706. Again, the scripture that we'll be reading this morning is Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, and for an angel of God, For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he had said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. May God bless the reading of his word. Up here, I realize I forgot to put on my mic. I have a wireless mic. So please, we'll have to, I'll be rooted to this place. That's not early-onset Alzheimer's. You obviously know it's not early-onset, right? It may be Alzheimer's, but it's not (laughs) early-onset. No, no. I've always been absent-minded. Actually, I came in early to cook a ham, and I got distracted by that, maybe. Emily will tell you more about that ham later on. I grew up, a little aside, I grew up in a... Church much like ours. No, not I grew up. I came to faith in a church much like ours. I was about 18 at the time. You know, in in this kind of a church tradition, we say things like Happy Easter. So when uh, Emily led us a little while ago, we stumbled a little bit with this. In fact, I studied theology at some point with the Anglicans. And the Anglicans, you know, it's a very long church history for the Anglicans. At least 500 years, not free church tradition, 500 years. But the church for like 2,000 years has always greeted Easter with the same statement and refrain. Not Happy Easter. That's really kind of lowbrow for for historic Christianity. It's always gone, Christ is risen. And the reply is, he is risen indeed. So when I went to study theology with the Anglicans, my professor, I was working on a PhD, and my professor there would have wondered whether I belonged back in grade school. Because on Easter morning, my first Easter there, he greeted me on the way to the chapel. He greeted me, Christ is risen. Now, I knew I was supposed to say something, but I had no idea what. So I said, yes, he sure is. <laughs> so let's try it now, and we'll try it again at the end of the service if my Alzheimer's does not kick in. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. 
Christ is risen. risen Now I feel good. Now, for those of us who've been Christians for a while, you know, Easter can be an ambivalent time because we know with our heads that this is hugely, this is a huge game changer. This is hugely significant. Uh, We know this with our heads. And maybe we can remember from the past, maybe we've been Christians Five years, 15 years, we can remember, oh, it used to be exciting, a special day. But it's hard to get emotionally cranked up just because, well, this year it's April 20th and I'm going to get cranked up for Easter. And so sometimes we end up feeling ambivalent about it. I can remember the second Easter that I was a Christian. I had grown up in a family that didn't go to church a whole lot. In fact, my grandfather, Episcopalian, my grandfather would go to church only on Easter. So on Easter, we'd go to my grandmother's house and all the family, the grandkids and the uncle and the, uh, my grandfather, all the men in the family, not the women, all the men in the family would go to church. On the way out, my, fa- my grandfather would greet the priest, an Episcopalian priest, with a Merry Christmas because he wouldn't be back until next Easter. They'd share that little joke, and then we'd go off and buy Easter lilies for, my, for all the women folk. Then we'd go back and have a big meal. And so when I first became a Christian, my, of my first Easter was hugely significant. It was only a couple months after I became a Christian. Hugely significant, the thought that God would send his son. The thought that the infinite God would care enough about me to send his son to die for me and for my sins so that I could come to God. This was hugely significant the first year. Uh, The thought that Jesus would care enough about me that he would voluntarily die on a cross. I mean, he didn't do it just for me, but he did it specifically for people including me. This was hugely significant. And, and I kind of grew up, you know, sometimes, some of you, I'm sure. As an adolescent, I was kind of bottled, all my emotions and my personality kind of bottled up inside. I was a real kind of shy and quiet guy. So when I became a Christian, all this stuff came bursting forth, and it was really an emotional experience for me. And that first year that I celebrated Easter, which hugely significant. You almost had to tie me down to the ground to keep me from getting too excited about it. But the second Easter... Is it a little odd? And maybe some of you feel this way about Easter, if you've been a Christian a while. Because the second Easter, I'd had this emotional backlog, right? And then that had been pouring out of me for a whole year by now. And I'm a reasonably cognitive guy. So by the time all that stuff had poured out for that long, there wasn't a whole lot more left in there to pour out. You know, the backlog had been broken and the waters had flooded and and the ground was dry. And I came to Easter and I wasn't emotionally engaged with it. And I began to wonder because my whole faith at that point, up to that point, my whole faith had been emotional in content, emotional in substance. So I began to wonder, have a Am I drifting away from God? Do I no longer love him? 
And what was worse, I was at a Bible college at the time, a Christian college, Christian university at the time, and my parents had become Christians in that intervening year or two. And, you know, if you've become a Christian and your family members aren't Christian, what a big deal that is, you know. In fact, it was a little awkward, but I more or less led my mother to Christ. And my father intimidated me too much for me to talk to him about Jesus. And he was ready to come to Christ, which is a pity that I didn't talk to him about Jesus. But Billy Graham talked to him about Jesus over the, over the TV. And so he'd become a Christian. So my second Easter, I've been a Christian maybe 15 months. My second Easter, my parents got baptized. And I was out in school in Oklahoma. So they flew me back to see them baptized. And I'm sitting there watching them get baptized. And I'm thinking, I should be more emotionally engaged with this. What's wrong? You know, and I was really worried about it. Whether I was growing hard and callous toward God. Now, emotions are really unpredictable things. Emotional connection engagement is really not what defines love. Gee, any parent knows. You know, when you're first in love, emotional engagement is really what defines love, right? But after you've been a family for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, love deepens. It's not nearly quite so frothy, but it deepens and the commitment grows. And, And somehow it's like that on our relationship with God. But what we want to look at this morning is the first time that people met the risen Jesus and the emotional impact it had on them. And then we'll think a little bit about the emotional ramifications for us. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, page 706 in your pew Bible. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Page 706 in your pew Bibles. Now, here's a striking thing. This is an aside, but we may as well not pass over it lightly because this matters to, to our culture today. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, who came? Who were the first people to come to see Jesus? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. It's odd That if the gospel writers want to convince people that Jesus rose from the dead, in their day, by their canons of justice, it's odd that they would cite the testimony of two women. Because, like it or not, in the first century, women were not typically allowed to be witnesses in a court of law. They were deemed unsuitable to be witnesses. And yet here we have, they they were not deemed to be credible, and yet here we have in the gospels, who are the first two that came? Mary Magdalene, the other Mary. They could come because they stood there. They stood at a distance and watched as Jesus died on the cross while his disciples had fled. They could come because after he was taken down from the cross and he was brought off to be buried, they followed along behind so they knew where to go. And so these women are the first to come to the tomb. Now, this passage gives us very little content to analyze. What it really talks about is the emotions of the event. You see, in verses 2 to 4, the angel appears. There was a violent earthquake, and an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. 
The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why would they be afraid? Angel. A supernatural power. They don't know what's happening, but the minute this angel stands in their midst, they know this is a, this is a frightening thing. This is a dangerous thing. The angel said to the woman, don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He's risen from the dead. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There will you see him. Now I have told you. And so the women hurried away from the tomb. Afraid. Still afraid. Because they've seen an angel. And yet, filled with joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. You see, there's very little emotion, or very little cognitive content here. What it is, is the emotions of it all. We imagine these women hurrying to tell this news, extraordinary news. They were the first people that had it. The privilege, the responsibility, the excitement of it all. They hurried away, afraid of the encounter that they had. And yet staggered by the joy of it and what it meant for them. And then in the second part, Jesus actually himself appears to them. Notice how nonchalant Jesus starts out greetings. Ah, it's actually, that's a little too formal for translation. Jesus starts out with, hello. The resurrected Jesus gives a deadpan hello. Maybe he didn't need to be any more dramatic than that. Just seeing Jesus was, you know, whoa, dog, what's going on? You know, and so he says, hi, how you doing? You know, and they came to him. They threw themselves at his feet. And they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Do you see the emotions of it? They're afraid. They're filled with joy. They throw themselves on his feet. They worship him. Don't be afraid. All this is, basically, is, is an emotional encounter. See, they certainly have no idea what's going on. Jesus had talked once in a while about his coming resurrection. But they would not have understood that this is what he meant. Jews believed in a coming resurrection. At the end of time, on the final day, all people would rise from the dead. They didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead. They were grieving. They didn't come here to see an empty tomb. That was not safe, you know, like a a zombie or, or something. They came to pay respects. They came to anoint his body for burial. They came to grieve like we go to graves to grieve. They didn't ever expect that he would rise from the dead before anyone did at the end of time. They're the first people that met the risen Jesus. They were the first to hear his voice. Think what it was like for these women. They knew that people don't come to life after they've been executed. There were several people in the first century, famous people, who thought they were going to lead Israel in war against the Romans and who tried and and were defeated and and then the Romans would crucify them, sometimes publicly. 
sometimes dozens of people publicly, they knew what happened to people who were crucified. They died. No one rises. Eventually the memory fades. And that's what they expected. And instead he rises from the dead. And the text is trying to help us capture the emotion of it. They were afraid. They were filled with joy. They clasped his feet. They worshipped him. He says, don't be afraid. You see, all of it's emotional, very little cognitive. Now, I think that's very hard for us because we're not driven by the written word anymore. Maybe a hundred years ago, people cared about it. We're driven by video. Now, I'm going to do something we don't usually do here because I, I stumbled across a video, you know, a video that was going viral. I stumbled across this a, a week or two ago. And I thought, this is, captures the emotions of Easter. So if you're really cognitive, like I tend to be, and don't want to get emotionally involved, never mind. You know, we don't do this often. Tolerate it for today. But I think it really does help us capture the emotions of that day. And it might be a bit overwhelming. Oh, I'm sorry. While you're, while you're rebooting that, let me explain what's going on here. This is a video of a woman named Joanne Milne. And what we'll see for the, is her hearing for the first time. Yeah, some of you have already seen this, right? I'll say the days of the week again. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. How does it sound? Just be careful you're not going to knock them off. Can you hear my voice coming through both sides? Yeah. yeah. Um. Very high. It will sound high-pitched at first. Your brain will readjust it for you. It won't always sound that way. It's all right. It's a big, big, life-changing day today. January, February, March, April, May, <laughs> June, July, August, September, October, November, <laughs> December. <laughs> Could you hear those words? <laughs> Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. When does anyone get excited to hear that? January, February, March. Who cares? This is what the passage is really trying to convey for us, is what it meant for them to be the first, to realize that not that Jesus is God, not that he's divine, Maybe not even yet that he's the Messiah, just somebody they cared about. They thought 
was going to bring hope to their nation. They thought might bring liberty from Rome. They thought might bring salvation for their sins. But he died. And they loved him. And he rose. They hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And he came to them. They clasped his feet and they worshipped him. Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. In this video, the hearing therapist says, it's a big, big, life-changing day today. Well, for them, it was an extraordinary life-changing day. And not just for them, not just for the first disciples. The rabbi they loved, they hoped it would change their world. This rabbi that they hoped would come and free Israel from the occupying forces of the Roman army. This rabbi who had given them hope that sinners could be forgiven that lives could be changed, that outsiders could become insiders. It was a big, big life-changing day for them, for his first disciples. But it's more than that today. Easter's a big, big life-changing day for the world, for history. There's a reason why for centuries we numbered our days. By B.C. and A.D., we numbered our years. Without the resurrection, Jesus would have been wrong because he said he would rise. Now, they didn't know what he meant, but he said he would rise. And had he not, he would have been wrong. Without the resurrection, Jesus' life and ministry end in defeat. It's not even a noble attempt. It was foolhardy for a Jewish peasant to declare that he was going to lead Israel against the Romans. Without the resurrection, there is no divine endorsement on Jesus. He was condemned as a heretic by the religious leaders, and that was one of the reasons he was crucified. And scripture itself said, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Without the resurrection, that verdict stands against Jesus that he's cursed and heretical. Without the resurrection, there would be no redemption for the disciples, for their cowardice, for deserting him when the soldiers came to take him, for fleeing when he hung on the cross. Without the resurrection, they would slink off in shame forever. There would be no church, no us. Without the resurrection... There would be no rational justification for how Jesus lived. There would be no reason for us to live sacrificially, to live or to die for a cause. Life would be random, his life and ours. Without the resurrection, there would be no forgiveness for our sins. Just death and darkness for him in the tomb, and for us in life. Without the resurrection, there would be no promise that one day in the future, God is going to set all things right, that he will one day rectify all that's wrong, that he will one day reward all that is good, that he will one day punish evil. Without the resurrection, there would be no divine ultimate reckoning.
with the resurrection, God has entered our lives. He's experienced our joys and our challenges. With the resurrection, Jesus is vindicated. He's exalted to heaven. With the resurrection, our faith has a strong basis. With the resurrection, he defeated not only the Romans, but Satan himself. And through him, we can defeat sin. With the resurrection, he can forgive the disciples, and their lives can be redeemed, and so can ours. With the resurrection, there's a point to anything we give for Jesus. With the resurrection, all evil will be set right, and all suffering will be honored. But the resurrection makes a difference not only for the first disciples and not only for world history, but it makes a difference for each of us. Now, if you grew up in the church, and I know many here have, maybe you slowly kind of segued into this thing. And that's a perfectly legitimate way to come to faith in God is a slow growth in the same direction. But maybe you grew up more or less unchurched unfamiliar with the gospel, as I did. Think about what it meant for you. The first time, think back, the first time, what it meant for you. Not to hear the days of the week or the months of the year, but the first time you heard about the gospel. I remember that day. I don't always get excited about it. When I stop and think about it, it engages me again. I remember the huge surprise the gospel was for me in my life. It's not like we have to feel this every day. You get and believe that Joanne Milne, you know, five years after she regains her hearing, she's stuck on an airplane on an overseas flight in a section with three or four babies. You can believe she wouldn't be excited about being able to hear under those circumstances. Maybe we aren't always excited about our past. Maybe we don't always remember what it's like. But take a moment just now to think about it. The first time you heard the gospel. The first time you gave your life to Christ. And maybe, he doesn't always do this, but maybe the first time he replied back to you when you gave your life to him. Maybe the first time you sensed his presence in your life. We could talk a lot about the historical proofs for the resurrection. And there's historians who do that. But that's not what we're going to talk about today or think about today. Most of us are not drawn by historical proofs, cognitive arguments, rational reasons, empirical evidence. Most of us are drawn by the connection of the gospel with some piece of our lives. Years ago, I was looking, I came across a book. I was really trying to develop some more rational arguments to believe in the gospel. And I bought a book called Philosophers Who Believe. If leading philosophers in America who believe can tell us what reasons led them to faith, surely these are persuasive arguments. You know, the irony was I read that book. Well, these professional cognitive philosophers were not typically drawn to faith by rationalism, by reasoning. Mostly they were drawn to faith 
by the way the gospel touched their lives. In science, I, mean, I know many of you have read the book by Francis Collins, The Language of God. Notice his subtitle, The Language of God. The scientist presents evidence for belief. The scientific evidence for belief. And yet, is, when he talks about his own conversion experience in the course of that book, he doesn't talk about the scientific evidence. What he talks about is being a doctor, ministering to dying patients, and seeing some of them with a resolve with a contentment as they face death. And having some of them ask him, what will you do when you're in my position? Why do you live? How will you die? So most of us really connect with the gospel because the gospel connects with some dimension of our lives. Think back to what first drew you to Christ. So many different things draw so many different ones of us. What was it that first drew you to Christ? And think back to your first response as he addressed that part of your life. Maybe it was a sense of meaninglessness. Is there nothing more to life than work and play? What's the purpose of it? Maybe there was a sense that you were looking for a love that you lacked. What's the point? of love, and what's the point of life? If we come from nothing and we go to nothing, what else is there beyond nothing? How do we explain love? How do we explain life in a way that gives it meaning? Maybe for some of you it was a sense of shame because of what you were or how you felt about yourself, and you longed for someone to wipe that away. Maybe it was a sense of guilt, not for who you were, but for what you've done, and you sought forgiveness. Maybe you were caught up in addiction and struggling against sin, and you were looking for liberation. Maybe instead you'd suffered evil and were looking for justice. Maybe it was a fear of death, and you were looking for hope that there was something beyond life or a sense of the meaninglessness of life and you were looking for a purpose. Maybe you wanted to be loved and weren't sure that anyone loved you and then you heard that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Maybe it was a feeling of brokenness that brought you to the gospel. And Jesus came to your life and said, you can be whole again. Maybe partly now, maybe fully only in the future, but you can be whole again. If you were born in a Christian home, maybe there's no time in your life that you can point to. There may be, but maybe there's not any time where you can point to where, where God reached in and the gospel touched one of those issues that was intrinsic to your heart. There's no loss in that. You save yourself a lot of harm often, a lot of danger, a lot of things to climb back out of if you grew up in a Christian home. So don't, don't ever regret that. But for those of us who remember what that first day was like, what that first hearing of the gospel was like, let us think about these things today.
When we, like these women, first met Jesus. When we, like Joanne Milne, first heard God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know that emotions are fickle things. Sometimes we feel them and sometimes we don't and we never want our faith to rest on emotions. And yet, Father, we know that when these women first saw Jesus, it made a huge difference in their emotions and in their lives. And for many of us, when we first met you, it made a huge difference in our emotions and in our lives. So we celebrate you today, Father, for the depth of love that would send your Son. And we celebrate you today, Jesus, for the depth of love that would empower you to come. We celebrate you, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.